Hey, and welcome to the Resound Church podcast. Whether it's your first or your 40th time tuning in, we're so glad you're here. And we pray that you get something powerful from today's sermon. My pads have there. There we go. Uh, good to see everyone. My name's Mason. If you don't know me, I'm on the team here at Resound. I feel good this morning. Do you feel good? It's nothing like being in the presence of God on a Sunday morning, being in church. I feel good, so that's dangerous for a few reasons this morning. Uh, so we'll just see how we go. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're new, great to have you. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoy the service and get something from God this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 39. Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to, no, 37 to 39. That's the one, 37 to 39. If you've um, been around church for a while or, um, you know, follow any Christian influencer online, you would have seen this verse a thousand times. Let me give you some context for before the verse. So Jesus has just come back into Jerusalem as king. Then he goes to the temple and he flips up all the tables and the money exchanges and everything like that because uh, he's angry. Then he has that famous line, for my house will be known as a house of... Exactly. And then, because he's done this, he's kind of made a scene, right? There are religious leaders now surrounding Jesus, and they are questioning him, trying to trap him. There's two different types of religious leaders. There's Pharisees and there's Sadducees, which means that they will probably, it was probably the Sanhedrin that was questioning them. Now, the Sanhedrin was the religious governing board of the day. They were made up of two types of people. You guessed it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were different. They didn't really like each other all that much because uh, different, they had different beliefs on things, but also they were from different social classes. So the Sadducees, to be a Sadducee, you had to be born into the right family. You had to be from the tribe of um, Levi. So you had to be born, like to be a Sadducee, you had to be born into being a Sadducee. Not any commoner could be that. And they were high class. They were like, uh, you know, like kind of drank their tea with their pinky out kind of people, right? And then, the, then you had the Pharisees, right, which were just commoners who trained in religious ways to become religious leaders. They had different doctrinal beliefs. The Pharisees believed in the oral Jewish law as well as the written Torah and the written scriptures. The, Saras, the Sadducees were like purists, considered themselves purists, and they only believed in the written law. That was a bit of context for later on in the sermon. But they're questioning Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. It's safe to say Jesus is pretty much mopping the floor with all of their questions. Then one of them, an expert in the law, stands up and tests him with another question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. As you may know, we're in a series as a church called Revive. The definition of Revive means to bring something that is dead back to life, something that is forgotten back to consciousness, or something that is weak to give it new strength. On, on, that defi- on those definitions, my message this morning is pretty simple. God, would you revive in us the reality of what it looks like to love you and love others? Would you revive that in us? But sometimes I think as Christians, we can get so busy and so uh, 
caught up with all these other things and we can get caught up in life where I, I think it's important that these two kind of things sometimes will begin to fade in our life. They need constant revival. We need to constantly revive what Jesus himself has said is the two greatest commandments in the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's clear in Scripture that Jesus came to restore two types of relationships. He firstly came to restore our vertical relationship with our heavenly Father. That is why Jesus came. For the Bible says that all things were created in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. For the fullness of God dwelled in him. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he had made a way for us to be reconciled with God. Jesus came and his purpose was to restore mankind with their heavenly Father. If you ask my three-year-old daughter what Jesus came to do, she will probably say, poopsie whoopsie. But if you got her on the right day and at the right time, if I say to her, what did Jesus come to do? She says to restore, oh, she doesn't say restore, that's a bit big for her. She says, Jesus came to make a way for us back to God. And that is true. That is what Jesus came to do to restore your relationship with your heavenly Father. But it is also clear in Scripture that not only did He come to restore our vertical relationship with the heavenly Father, but He also came to restore our horizontal relationships with each other as well. For Jesus often talked about how we should treat each other. He came not only to restore a vertical relationship with the Father, but also our horizontal relationships with each other. And no verse says it better than this verse in Matthew. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might, and to love others as you love yourself. The question is, though, what does that look like realistically? Have you ever thought about that? Because we often preach about this a lot and we quote it and it's on Christian hashtags and Instagrams and all this kind of stuff. Love God, love people. Like every church has that on their thing. Love God, love people. It's amazing. We just love God and we just love people. That gets really confusing because today culture will dictate what love means and it's completely different to how God sees love. And so if we go off a cultural definition of what love is, we can get really messed up to what God is actually trying to... Listen, God should define what love is. If you're going to say God is love, then he needs to define what that love is. Not the culture, not Instagram, not Facebook, not the seven o'clock news, but his word defines what love is. So have you ever thought, what does that look like realistically? Because we say it a lot, but what does that actually look like? Exactly. He ruined my message. Everyone go home. (laughs) I'm trying to build some tension here and he just killed it. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to do something real random. Do you like movies? (laughs) I like movies. Get around all these different types of movies. So I love pretty much all types of movies. Action movies, drama movies, I love them all. There's one type of movie that I can't get around. Romantic movies. Oh, come on, people. Is there anyone here who does not like romantic movies? Come on, a few people. Who likes romantic movies? 
Yeah, I see no male hands, only female. I just can't get around romantic movies, man. They're just so... Do you know why? Oh, this is why. They're so unrealistic, romantic movies. And you might say, well, Mason, Lord of the Rings is unrealistic. Avengers is unrealistic. Fast and the Furious, that's unrealistic. Star Wars, unrealistic. So what's your problem? My problem is, right, that yes, action movies are unrealistic, but no couple walks out of an action movie like Superman. And as you're walking out, one couple does not turn to the other couple and say, geez, you're a piece of work. Could you fly once in a while? Do you always have to pick me up in the car? Just once in a while, could you just punch someone through the wall like Superman? Like, come on. But in an unrealistic romantic movie, couples do come out of that cinema and one couple will turn to the other and go, come on. Did you see how romantic that was? Why can't you be more like that? I'm like, listen, because it's unrealistic. But they're like, no, but did you see it? It was so romantic. He walked a th- uh, 500 miles and then he walked another 500 miles just to be the man that walked a 1,000 miles to wind up at her door. Like, could you just, would it kill you to walk a 1,000 miles for me? Are you asking me if it would kill me? Look at me. Probably. That's 38 marathons, just so you know. Would it kill me to walk 38 marathons? Yeah, it probably would, to be honest with you. How about we be more realistic? I'll drive 1,000 miles for you. That's fine. I'll drive 1,000 miles to wind up at your door. Me and Jess's first date, I drove from Canberra to Melbourne, took her out for lunch, and then drove home. Thank you. Thank you. See, so I'll do it, right? I'll drive a 1,000 miles. That's fine. How about this? This is more realistic. I'll put the toilet seat down for you. (laughs) Nothing lights the fire like a pre-prepped toilet seat. That was a weird thing to say. I'm sorry. (laughs) Put the toilet seat down. I will put one toilet seat down and I will put the other one too. Just to be the man that put two toilet seats down so you could do a... That's romance. That's realistic. That's what it actually means. You know, sometimes we get this fluffy idea about what romance looks like and what love looks like, and we get it from the movies, but it's unrealistic. Like the notebook. Please don't just get me started on the notebook. I hate the notebook. It's like the most roof's offended, but that's okay. The notebook is the, the stupidest movie ever because everyone's like, it's so romantic. Let me set this here. The first scene. She's on a date with another man, and he hangs off of a Ferris wheel to ask her on a date. That is crazy. That's not mentally stable. That's like crazy. If you went down to the Geelong foreshore and somebody jumped on the Ferris wheel, everybody would be looking at that going, man, this bloke needs some help. Nobody would looking, be looking at that like, that's the future father of my children. That's who I want to marry my children. This bloke hanging off the side of a Ferris wheel. It's unrealistic. I'll tell you why else it's unrealistic. She is on a date with another man. If someone did that to Jess, when I was on a date with Jess, it's one move. (laughs) Goodbye competition. That's realistic. The other thing is they go out on this nice date. She's dressed up all nice. And then they lay in the middle of the road in the dirt. Unrealistic. No woman gets dressed up nice nice for a night out and then wants to lay in the dirt. In the middle of the road. That's crazy. It's unrealistic. And then this is the biggest one. He takes her on a boat. And he doesn't tell her where she's going. 
people, if, if a man offers to take you on a boat in the middle of a swamp, don't do it, okay? It's just dangerous. It's stranger danger. Just don't do it. But she goes with him, and then he goes, and then she goes, and there's like a million white ducks. And they're like, that's so romantic. Have you ever smelt a duck? <laughs> Times that by a thousand. That's no, if she wasn't dry reaching, realistically, she would be dry reaching over the edge. But, oh, that's so romantic. And he lives in a big house and he's handsome. He lives by a lake. It's still romantic. No, that's South America. That's not a lake. It's a swamp. Congratulations. You're in love with Shrek. (laughs) Sometimes we get all this. This is love and it's lovey-dovey. The reality of what this is saying isn't so fluffy. It's not. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as it's yourself. It begs the question, what does that look like in reality? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength means to love him with all of who you are. In your mind, in your body, in your soul, in in your spirit, it should change and transform who you are. Your love for Jesus should reprioritize your priorities. That's what it means to love God with everything that you are. It should change your emotions. It should get you out of bed in the morning. It should push you into, that's the first thing I want to do in the morning is spend time with my creator. And that's the last thing that I want to do at night is spend time with my creator. It is a, with everything. Let me just point out two things, what it would look like with everything. Matthew, uh, John chapter 14, sorry, you can put John chapter 14 up. When Jesus is talking about the, uh, the Holy Spirit and bringing, he mentions this throughout John chapter 14 a few times. But he says, Jesus replied to his disciples, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength is to have a home with God. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teachings. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All of this I have spoken while still with you. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? It means to continue with sanctification. Now, it's a big word. I'm going to explain it. But it means to continue with with sanctification. When we come to Jesus, he accepts you just the way that you are. You can be broken, hurt, messed up. You can have all of these things going wrong. You could have cursed God your whole life. Do you know what the Bible says? That while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So his arms are open and he says, come as you are. Don't wait. I love you. I want a relationship with you. But it is not come as you are and stay as you are. It is come as you are, but don't stay as you are. For God's, the power of salvation is not accepting and approving. The power of salvation is accepting and transforming 
Thank God when I came to Jesus at 16 years of age, broken, messed up and hurting, that he did not allow me to stay where I was in my warped identity and he didn't allow me and approve of the things that I was doing, but he transformed me from the inside out and gave me a new identity from fatherless son to the son of the living God. He changed me. When you come to Jesus, that's where transformation starts, the moment of salvation. You come to Jesus, the Bible says that he makes you new. He gives you a new DNA. You're no longer lost, but you are found, adopted into his family, that he legitimately, you are born again, justified. Your slate is wiped clean. He accepts you. But then the work of sanctification is you and I partnering with his spirit to become all who God has called us to be. That's transformation power. The world does not need to hear coming out of the church in this day and age that God accepts you and approves of you. The the world needs to hear that God accepts you the way you are and his power is there to transform you into who you've been called to be. Anything else is a culture pandering weak gospel. For the gospel power is one of transformation. To love the Lord God with all your heart and all your strength is actually to lay down your life, deny yourself, and continue with him in the work of sanctification. Because it's hard. You have to lay down things. The great call of Jesus is one of denial, one of death. For those who want to come to me, you must deny yourself, give up your way, pick up your cross, which is to die and follow me. For our love for God and what it means to love Jesus is actually to deny ourselves and continue to follow him with our whole lives, with everything, with everything. Keep at the work of sanctification. Let the Holy Spirit keep reviving and keep crucifying the things in your life that he brings to your attention so that you can be all who God has called you to be. He doesn't want you to stay the same. He wants to transform you to all you could be, which, by the way, looks like Jesus. Secondly, and again, you could go on and on and on what it means, but secondly, it means to prioritize time with him. Your relationship with God isn't a time issue. It's a priority issue. For you will make time for the things that you prioritize. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, you will prioritize time with him. I'm trying not to eat chips for 12 months. Again, you're like, this guy's so random. (laughs) I'm trying not to eat chips for 12 months. You know why? Because I can't stop. I eat one, and I keep going. I keep going. I keep going. And then next thing you know, three bags are gone. It's the same when we spend time with God. The more you spend time with him, the hungrier you get for his presence. And so to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength is to prioritize him. In 1939, C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters, Senior Devil to Junior Devil, teaching, oh, the senior devil teaching the junior devil in the art of temptation. He writes this, junior devil, 
What's our plan again? Senior devil. Our plan is quite simple, to create so much noise in the world, in the world that mankind can't hear the voice of his God anymore. 1939. Wow. I actually think it was a, quite prophetic to the world that we live in today. To, there is so much noise in our world today that even Christians who sit in the church every day have forgotten what the Lord their God's voice sounds like. You must prioritize time with God, if nothing else, so you can hear his voice. You can hear his voice. For what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength? It means to deny yourself and continue walking in the spirit and letting him deal with the stuff he wants to deal with so that you can come, become more like Jesus and all he is calling you to be. And it, that looks like prioritizing time with him, eliminating all this noise to be still and know that he is God. For Jesus said that my flock will know my voice. But that one's easy. In the two, love God and love people, for me, that's, easy. that's the easy one. Why? Because God's so good. And he transformed me. I shudder to think where I would be without God's transform, transforming power, transformation power. So although that's hard for me, that's, yeah, I'll give my life to you, Jesus. I'll continue to give my life to you, Jesus. I'll walk with your spirit, Jesus. But to love my neighbor, in reality, that's a lot harder because I've been hurt before. I've been broken before. I've been ripped off before. God is amazing. Sometimes people suck. So the question begs then, it's like, well, what does that look like in reality? And when we start to think these things, we start to justify in our mind, well, you know, if it's to love God and to love people, well, then I'll just love the people that love me. No, Jesus says even the pagans can do that. So I'll just love the people that are kind to me and nice to me, and I'll love the people who are in my circle, and I'll love the people who go to my church, and I'll love the people, you know, who say, have good things to say about me, and it'll all be great, and people have never hurt me, and all this kind of stuff, and I'll just create a barrier around myself, and I'll just hold myself like with these people and I'll just love these people because those people are my neighbor. We start to justify who's my neighbor, not my neighbor. It, you know, I've even heard someone say, well, it's neighbor. So that means it's your neighbors who live next to you in the street. It sounds funny, but even there was a, a religious leader who tried to test Jesus in this. In Luke chapter 10, a religious leader says, hey, well, what the, who's my neighbor? That's the question. If we're called to love our neighbor, the question is, then who's my neighbor? And in Luke chapter 10, a religious leader asked Jesus that question, well, then who's my neighbor? And Jesus' answer has become famous as the good Samaritan. You have to understand, the good Samaritan is a story. It's a parable. Stories and parables aren't uh, like a a new thing in that culture. Jesus didn't make them up. Rabbis and, well, he made the ones he set up, but rabbis and teachers would teach with stories and parables all the time. 
And so it was a common thing that if you asked a rabbi or a teacher a question, they would answer you with the story. Why? Because in Jewish culture, when you listened to a story, you were listening for identification, who you are in the story. In our culture, we watch movies and stories for content and entertainment. Oh, wasn't that a good show? Oh, that was this. We just listen to it for entertainment. That's not what is happening here. Jesus is telling a story to answer the man's question through identification. The question is, when a rabbi begins to tell you a story, the question you ask is, in this day and age, is who am I in the story? For when he says, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, let me tell you a story. The Pharisee would have said, okay, he's about to tell me who I am. He's about to tell me who I am in this story and answer my question. So the story goes like this, for lack of time, I'll just tell you the story. The story goes like this. You can understand they're all around, the Pharisees listening. Jesus says, there is a man, and he gets abused and beaten and stripped naked, and all of these things get stolen, and he gets thrown into a ditch. Okay, cool. Gets thrown into a ditch. That's him setting up the story. Then he says, a priest walks past. Now, the priest was a Sadducee. And he was talking to a Pharisee. So Pharisee would have gone, oh, this isn't me. Because he's talking about a Sadducee, not a, not a Pharisee. And he says, the priest comes, looks at the man, and crosses the other side of the road, and he keeps walking. I can imagine the Pharisee probably would have been like, yeah, that's right. Because they are a little bit stuck up, those Sadducees, and they probably wouldn't have stayed to help someone. And then he continues. And he goes, then a Levite walks past looks at the man and keeps walking. Well, the Pharisee, well, he's a Levite. He's a Sadducee as well. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, those guys wouldn't stop and help someone. Now, in, in typical Jewish stories, there are always three characters. And if you're not the first or the second, then they're about to tell you who you are by the third. So he doesn't identify with the first or the second because they're Sadducees. He's a Pharisee. Then Jesus says, so he goes, okay, Jesus is about to tell me who I am. And then he says, Along comes a Samaritan. You're calling me a Samaritan. You have to understand that if there was someone that Pharisees hated more than anybody else on the planet, it was Samaritans. <laughs> they despised them. thought they were the scum of the earth. Here comes the Samaritan. You're calling me a Samaritan? Samaritan comes, helps the man, lifts him up, clothes him, pays for his hotel room fixes him back, gives him some money. Then Jesus says, who was the neighbor? The tell is that he hates Samaritans so much that he doesn't even say the Samaritan. What does he say? He says, I suppose it's the one who showed mercy. He doesn't even want to say it's the Samaritan. Suppose it's the one who showed mercy. You see, Jesus told this man three things about who, or four things about who his neighbor was in one story. The first thing he told him is this, and the band can come back up because I'm almost done. The first thing he told him is this, that your neighbor is not a specific person, but rather anyone you come in contact with. That means the people that are sitting in this room. That means the people that you walk past on the street. That means the, the, the cashier lady behind the register, or man, behind the register. That means uh, whoever you come in contact with, that is who you are supposed to show love and compassion and kindness towards. It is whoever. 
It is not a specific person. So you cannot say it's just these people and not these people. It's anyone that you come in contact with. Anyone. But I don't like these types of It doesn't matter. If you come in contact with them, you're called to love and show compassion and kindness for them. Then he gives us a real world example of what it looks like to love someone as you love yourself, which is to treat them selflessly how you would want to be treated. Selflessly. If you look at all relationships teaching through the Bible, from marriages to friendships to to, uh, anything, kids, partners, everything is about being selfless. The man comes and he selflessly treats this stranger, this neighbor, like he would want to be treated. He shows compassion towards him. He loves him. Do you know what I think? I think we should almost give next to no time even thinking about the needs of people that we, have nothing, that we cannot help because it's not in our means or, or all that kind of stuff. But if it is within our power to help someone and we don't, we think God lives in that how. I love this church, man, because we do so much missions work. Why? Because it's within our power to do so. So we do. But if you see someone or come across a neighbor and it is within your power to help them, encourage them, show compassion and love upon them, and you don't, you think God lives in that how? I told you the reality of what Jesus is saying is not fluffy. It's not a romantic movie. It's real life. There are people who are hurting and broken and the church has the answer. Do you know that still the number one killer of teenagers is suicide? That's teenagers getting to the point where they feel like there is no hope. But we come to Sunday and we celebrate hope every Sunday. If it is within our power to help and reach people, then let's do it. And let's do it. He also says that sometimes the person that is your neighbor is the one that you hate the most. The Samaritan. Oh, you meet a Samaritan. It's the one that you hate the most. I'm not telling you to be unwise with the people that have hurt you in your life, but I am telling you to let it go and where you can show love and compassion. You know the fourth thing he says, and I love this, the fourth thing he says to this man is sometimes the person you hate the most is yourself. For how are we to love a world around us like we love ourselves? If when we look in the mirror every day, we hate what we see. There needs to be a revival in us, understanding who we are in Christ. For we can play games. We can play church games, religious games, and we can act and pretend like some people are better than others. Or we can all just come to the honest conclusion that it is God. And without Him, all of us are dead in the water. And without Him, all of us are nothing. But through Him and the work of His Spirit and His transforming power, He calls us fearfully, wonderfully made. He calls us a son and a daughter of the living King. He puts purpose in you. He puts life in you. He transforms you. You are not your past. You are who He says that you are. Beautifully restored. 
with a plan and a purpose. If there's breath in your body, then God has a plan for you today. Sometimes the person you hate the most is yourself. Forgive yourself for Christ has forgiven you. But I did this and I did this and I've stuffed up and I'm broken. and I'm, uh, We all are. It's only Jesus. It's only Him. It's only Him. Sometimes I think if you feel that way, the start of loving others is a revival of your identity in Christ. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that He has called and gifted you beyond your wildest dreams and imagines that He's got a plan for you and a purpose for you and you can have influence in people's life. You can lead people to hope. He, he's tr- trying to speak to you, to guide you, to teach you. So love Him with all of your heart. Stay the, the, stay the course of sanctification. Keep walking and trusting Him when He speaks to you through His Word to change things, to crucify things, to pick things up, to let things be revived in you and go into the world and love people selflessly and know who you are in Christ. God, we need a revival of the reality of what it looks like to love you with all our heart, strength and mind and to love others as we love ourselves. You could stand to your feet. Thanks for listening through this message recorded live at Resound Church in Melbourne. You can find out more about who we are online, including our service times and live streams. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time.